This is Bernadette Bridie, Head of Marketing here at FS Investments. Thanks for joining us for part two of the conversation between FS Chief Investment Officer Mike Kelly and NIDIG CEO Robbie Gutman. Mike and Robbie dive into an overview of NIDIG and what they do, institutional adoption of Bitcoin, and the environmental impact of Bitcoin in today's podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's talk about NIDIG for a moment. How did NIDIG come about as a firm? And when did you all start it? And, and when you did, what sort of void in the market were you seeking to fill when you built NIDIG? Sure. So NIDIG, as you mentioned, is a subsidiary of a holding company called Stone Ridge Holdings Group. And there are three operating companies within the Stone Ridge Holdings Group umbrella. The, the first and the largest of those companies is called Stone Ridge Asset Management. And we're, we're an alternative asset manager based in, in Midtown Manhattan. And the, the genesis of NIDIGs or the ideas that ultimately became NIDIG actually started way back in, in late 2015, early 2016, where the, the principals, it's a closely held um, em, em, employee-owned firm, we, we were studying this idea of an open source monetary system and got progressively more fascinated with it and, and began accumulating Bitcoin on our balance sheet. And as you guys well know, as an institutional asset manager managing money on behalf of institutional allocators, highly regulated um, entity, we went looking for institutional uh, custodians effectively. So we, like you guys, custody, you know, tens of billions of dollars of weird stuff at institutional custodians, called one of them up and said, hi, I want to put some Bitcoin in my custody account. And, and the nice gentleman on the other side of the phone said, bit what? And that was our first idea that like, oh, this isn't going to be quite so easy as, as we thought. And so that because we're, again, highly regulated, audited, everything we do by EY, we, we actually needed an institutional solution to, to do this. And so that's really where the project started to develop our own solution. And there were really three parts of that at first. So the first was execution. How do you actually turn dollars into Bitcoin um, in a way that satisfies all stakeholders? Then once you've done that, how do you store the Bitcoin safely and securely and crucially in a way that your big four auditor uh, understands and can prove that you have control of the position? Um, and finally, there was a lot of accounting work. It was deeply unsexy, uh, but has actually turned into some of our most valuable IP today as we manage billions of dollars of, of these assets on behalf of institutional investors. So. Uh, the genesis was really phase one. We built it for ourselves, uh, and it still today stores uh, actually uh, close to a billion dollars of our individual and corporate holdings uh, in, in the system. So we take the operational sanctity and security of the system very seriously. Then, then we uh, enhance the system to use it to manage commingled vehicles inside the Stone Ridge Asset Management business, again, an SEC-registered RIA. Then, then we realized that that infrastructure had actually had broader applicability. Uh, and so we actually created a separate operating company in the Stone Ridge umbrella called NIDIG. We put all the IP in NIDIG uh, and, and turn that into a separate company. Um, and it, it turns out in a lot of ways that today we, we saw one of the ultimate realizations of, of that vision. So we announced today, I don't know if you saw the news, a, a partnership with FIS, uh, which is the largest uh, uh, financial technology provider to banks in the US 
a, a partnership where actually through their bank core platform, they're going to use our technology and our regulatory stack to allow banks to offer Bitcoin to their customers. One of the things you're alluding to in there is this spectrum of an, an integration, vertically integrated uh, firm that you've built. Can you speak a little bit more to what advantage does sort of being vertically integrated uh, confer for your clients, those who use your services? Why is that so important? Because it seems very distinct from others in the marketplace. We, we think so. Thank you. Um, so there are really two advantages that, that matter to institutional allocators uh, such, as, such as your clients. So the, the first is um, the ease of diligence. So you can actually diligence the whole process top to bottom. Um, and that's because we've designed and implemented all the processes, all the policies, all the procedures, all the technology, all the regulatory engagement was designed from the ground up to work together to make it possible for a fiduciary to allocate their client's assets to, to, to their client's portfolio to these assets. The, the second though, once, once you have that out of the way, is cost. Um, because we are vertically integrated, we are able to squeeze a huge amount of the cost um, out of these offerings. So today we, we offer fully all in, um, our cost to us is 30 basis points uh, to offer Delta One exposure to this, to this asset. And as, as the business scales, we, we actually expect to see continued uh, economies of scale and expect to continue to drive prices down from here. Um, we we, we want to eliminate um, all the obstacles to advisors to being able to allocate. And so first was the operational complexity, and then second is cost. Great. It feels like, you know, every week, or even almost every day these days, uh, we're reading about the, the increased level of institutional adoption. Um, it seems to be increasing, but it also seems quite early. You know, we have, we've had Tesla and MicroStrategy and others incorporating Bitcoin into their treasury allocations, right? Which, which could be an absolute game changer. Are you surprised by this development? And, and can you speak a little bit to where we are in the cycle of institutional adoption? Sure. I, so I am not surprised by the development and we, we are very, 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 very early. Um, but I, I expect at some point every corporation will have some amount of their treasury in, in Bitcoin. Um, so you, you mentioned a, a couple that, that we've done some work with, Tesla and MicroStrategy. We also do a lot of work with um, insurance company general accounts. And what we hear from them is, is really all a variant of the same thing. And it's really a variant of the question you, your clients could be asking themselves about, about their clients, which is on the, on the corporate side, it's how do I protect the purchasing power of my fiat revenue? So when I... Elon Musk am thinking about building a factory in Texas or in Germany, or uh, I, Michael Saylor, am thinking about in, investing in R&D to improve my uh, business intelligence software. And I see the monetary and fiscal policy out in the world, and I want to make sure that I'm in a position to invest for the long run. They, they see Bitcoin as a way to store the wealth that they're generating. 
um, on behalf of their shareholders. And, and what we hear from especially life insurance companies, life and annuity companies, is a variant of the same thing. They have very long dated dollar denominated liabilities to their policyholders in the form of life insurance, annuities, other products. And they, they want to make sure they can make good in 30 years uh, when it comes time to pay out to those policies. They, they take their obligations to their policyholders very seriously. And, you know, in a world where those, those allocators have generally owned IG corporate credit for most of their careers, looking out at the world, it's not at all obvious that owning IG corporate credit is going to get them there. Uh, and so they are, and I, I have to hand them to it. They're very thoughtful. They're very forward thinking. They're very courageous. They do a lot of work. They're very thorough when it when it comes time to doing their both their investment and, and operational diligence. But once once they decide to do it, they they go and they and they allocate big. And so I do continue to see. Uh, many, many, many companies that look like that, both ones that we're in active conversations with today, the ones that are talking to other providers, as well as people that are not as far along in the journey. I think over the next five to 10 years, you'll see everybody allocating. In addition to Bitcoin, you have Dogecoin uh, and later XYZ coin, et cetera. So cryptocurrency seems to have unlimited supply, right? So it's sort of a counter to the claim that Bitcoin has limited supply, but cryptocurrencies don't have unlimited supply. So how do you, how do you tie those two together? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the analogy. So we we think of Bitcoin differently than everything else, and uh, you know, ha happy to talk more about that. And I, and I think an analogy would be, sh sh sure, there are U.S. dollars and Bahamian dollars. If the Bahamian government makes more Bahamian dollars, does that change the value of the U.S. dollar just because they're both called dollars? I, I would argue no. I think those are two independent systems. And I, I think the exact same analogy holds here. So, you know, the, the value of Dogecoin is purely, same as Bitcoin, purely reliant on what someone will ultimately give you for a Dogecoin. And my personal view is that that's much less likely to have any value in the long run uh, relative to, to Bitcoin. And since we're, we're talking about other coins, does Nidig have a view on the rest of the crypto space? Let's put Dogecoin aside for a moment, you know, including ETH and the Ethereum blockchain and, and the, the, the plethora of altcoins being developed. And, and does Nidig plan on offering services and products for this over time, or is the focus just on Bitcoin and, and why? Yeah, so I mean, we we view everything through the same lens, and you have to remember we've we've been looking at this for for a long time. I told you, you know, our Stone Ridge journey really started in 2015, but a lot of us have been have been doing this personally for for much longer than that. I, you know, these these are all open source software projects, and they're large scale distributed software systems. And I'll 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 give you one an analogy or tell you a story from my past. So. Mike, as I, I think you know, and 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 maybe similar to you, I, I started my career at at Morgan Stanley, uh, in the in the securities division, working for a guy named Alan Thomas, at a at a time when electronic trading um, was was really kind of clearly starting to displace um, high touch trading in 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 the cash world, especially, but in derivatives as well. And I I learned a lot from Alan Thomas. I'm very grateful to to him, and always always will be. He's a good good partner of ours, um, and. 
you know, one, a couple of the things I learned from him were, were number one, we, we were better in the business. Like we won business because we were just better than our competitors at producing and maintaining and managing large scale distributed software systems. And there were two primary things about why that was. So the first was he was really, 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 really careful about making changes to the production system. Clients wanted different things all the time, and that's great. You listen, you write them down. You really make very few changes to a large-scale distributed software system running in production. The, the second is the longer such a system runs in production, the more valuable it is. The more learning you have, the more value accrues in the, in the system. So when, when we look at all of these different projects, it's always through that lens. Number one, how does the community that maintains the system approach making changes to the system? And number two, how long has the system been running in production? So the answer, so Bitcoin has been running in production for about 12 years now, by far the longest of any of these systems. And the we're, we're actually at this point, because as a, a company, we're, we're pretty focused on Bitcoin, a couple of exceptions I'll, I'll share with you. We're, we're actually highly engaged in the software community, in the open source community that, that manages the development process. And one of the things we really like, like why all our personal wealth is in Bitcoin uh, and, and not some of these others, is the way the community approaches making changes to the system is just like Alan Thomas, very slow, very thoughtful, very deliberate, very methodical, very incremental. There aren't large-scale wholesale changes to the system to try and add more features. And that's a deliberate approach that really, in, in my view, makes the chances of that long-term $100 trillion, 100x outcome possible, even likely. And we today don't see that same approach either in length of tenor, tenure or um, approach of the community in any of the other projects. Now, again, it, it just takes time. So it could be that, you know, in, in seven years when Ethereum has been running in production for 12 years, that may change. And when the, the community is not adding features so fast, could, could have a different view. But at least today, that's, that's how we view the ecosystem. And so as a result, our approach is where, where we are an asset manager. That is where uh, clients pay us for our investment advisory services as a fiduciary. We only invest client assets in Bitcoin. Like if you ask me for my investment advice, my advice is buy Bitcoin. Um, we, because again, we are vertically integrated. We have all the pieces of software and all of the relevant regulatory licenses and all of the relevant operational processes that we've, we've developed ourselves at scale. Um, we, we do have more of a prime brokerage type business where, um, high net worth individuals and, and hedge funds can trade directly with us in, in, in that business. Uh, they're much less interested in my opinions about what they should trade, but they do value the robustness of our system, the highly engaged regulatory approach. And so in that context, we do see about 2% of our business uh, is, is in Ethereum, where about 98% of the business is in Bitcoin. Why NIDIG versus having a client purchase Bitcoin on their own? And maybe you can use a little bit of the answer on this, however you'd answer with a little bit more on the security. And because we've all heard <laughs> the horror stories of lost passwords and and hacks and things of that nature. And, and, and so how does NIDIG address security measures? And, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, cold storage and what that approach confers. The answer I usually give is if you have a client where both of the following conditions are true, 
Um, they want to buy less than $25,000 worth and they don't want you to manage it for them. Uh, by far the best thing to do is use either PayPal or Square Cash App to just buy it on their phone. Like they shouldn't, that's not really what our product is made for. Um, and it's, it's far easier to just whip your phone out and, and buy it. That's what I tell people that ask me, you know, how, how do I buy Bitcoin? I say, do you, is it less than $25,000? And do you have a financial advisor that you want to have visibility into it? If both those things are no, great, use PayPal. Um, if either of those other two, if either of those two conditions are met, your client wants to do more than $25,000 or they want it visible to the financial advisor, none of the direct offerings really except for ours are really set up to do that effectively. So it's really hard for you as the financial advisor, even from a mechanical perspective, let alone from a compliance perspective to manage a PayPal Bitcoin account and report on it in a consolidated way, do gains and loss management, do coherent tax planning, make it part of their estate. None of those things really work if they just if they just buy it on, on PayPal. Um, so, in, and then in terms of, okay, once you've said, aha, I have a client, they want to do more than $25,000 and, or they want, they want me to have visibility into it. So now I want to use a provider like NIDIG or use NIDIG specifically, we, we have a range of solutions. We have the funds that are available in partnership with FS. Um, we, we do have some direct solutions as well. They all use the same integrated technology that, that Mike has, has talked about. And our, our approach to security is our system is 100% cold storage. And that's, that's a term of industry jargon. What it means is that the systems that store the passwords, because it's really all in the end, just a password for the Bitcoin, those systems are never connected to any network, especially not the internet. So they're completely air-gapped. Um, we actually use specialized hardware uh, to, to do this. It's a system called an HSM, a hardware security module. We actually use the same systems the Department of Defense uses uh, to encrypt and decrypt top secret communication. Uh, it's, uh, the, the devices are manufactured here in the United States. We have complete supply chain management from the moment they leave uh, where they're produced to the moment they, they arrive at our facility. Uh, we, we actually keep those pieces of hardware in uh, extremely high security facilities, actually the highest security facilities that are available by law uh, to private citizens uh, or, or private companies in the, in the United States. Uh, our neighbors in those facilities are mostly three-letter government agencies and our primary facility, it's the Department of Homeland Security uh, that's, that's next door to us. Uh, it, it is very, very, very hard to get inside those facilities if you're not invited three-level biometric checks, no foreign nationals allowed inside, 15-year federal-level background checks uh, before, before you can go inside. No one who is not invited uh, gets, gets inside. Um, and then once, once you get past all of that, you know, the primary facility is a mile underground in an old limestone mine. You get past the sharks with the laser beams on their heads. Uh, we, we actually manage the security of our dedicated uh, cage, it's, it's called, essentially a secure facility inside the, the secure facility uh, where we, we build out and manage. And so in, we, we manage uh, two completely redundant facilities like this. One is on the East Coast of the United States, not in the tri-state area. Uh, one is in the Midwest of the United States. 
completely separate weather patterns, completely separate power grids, completely separate seismic zones. Uh, and because of the nature of who, who is in these facilities, uh, by, by law, they actually maintain 21 days of backup food, water, and fuel. Uh, and uh, by law, local municipal police and fire departments can't get inside. Uh, they have their own police and fire departments at, at these facilities. Local fire department shows up, like they're not on the list, can't get inside. Uh, and then within, within these two redundant facilities, we actually maintain two completely redundant copies of the infrastructure inside. So there's basically four places uh, that are live, active, hot, accessible at all times uh, that we can actually use to, to, run, to run our business. Happy to go into more detail on that for anyone, anyone that's interested. We have a whole like eight hour diligence session that, that we do on that. Do you mine Bitcoin? Do you mine yourselves? Um, we, we do not mine ourselves. We have uh, some equity investments from the NIDIG balance sheet um, in some of the most sophisticated industrial scale miners um, on, on earth. Um, but they're, they're the operators. We're, we're merely equity investors and, and we sit on the board and, and help with governance matters. Um, and we, we actually have a pretty significant um, minor finance and minor derivatives business. As, as part of all this. So we, we lend dollars against um, mining equipment as, as part of this business. Uh, and then the miners use our custody and execution to do liquidation, the same systems that we use to manage the funds that your clients would invest in. Uh, and and we, we do derivatives like you might see in any commodities business, forward flow, offtake agreements, things, things like that. Right, thank you. Uh, last one before we wrap up here, you know, there's there's been uh, a fair amount of media criticism aimed at Bitcoin. Um, I'll put my uh, editorial aside on that. But, um, you know, one of the one of the criticisms has been around the amount of energy usage, uh, you know, used to produce these consensus blocks at current prices. And, you know, many of us are clearly concerned about the environment and the impact of investment decisions around ESG policies. How do you at NIDIC view this challenge for Bitcoin given the expectation of even higher prices and therefore much higher energy requirements in the future? And do you believe the criticism is actually fair? Yeah, I, so I, I, I certainly believe that the community generally has not done a good job of providing a counter narrative. Um, that is something I think you're starting to see change. Square actually does a lot of really good work about that. And, and we actually have a lot of work going on in the background and are going to announce uh, some pretty exciting initiatives in, in this regard as, as soon as this July. Um, you know, I, so in, in that sense, I do think the criticisms are fair in that they're one-sided. I, I don't think they're correct. Uh, and I think they're, they're <clears throat> born, born of a fair amount of misinformation and lack of understanding about how the, the system works. Um, one of the things that makes Bitcoin a fundamental shift in how humans think about money is it's the world's first location agnostic consumption of energy. And I think over the next 10 years, what you're going to see is that that is going to make Bitcoin actually one of the first things to transition to 100% or nearly 100% renewable energy as the cost of renewable energy comes down. Because without getting into tons of details about 
mechanics of the energy market, when you think about the cost of energy, there's actually two parts to that. There's the cost to produce the energy, and then there's the cost to transmit the energy. And if you think about human development over, even in the United States, over the last 300 years or so, where cities develop around places where you can generate energy, but not have to transmit it very far. And so especially, again, take the United States, for example, there is an, enough geothermal energy in the United States to power the entirety of the United States. But usage rounds to zero because it's physically located in places that are very hard to access. So actually producing the geothermal energy in the middle of nowhere is easy and cheap, but if you have to transmit it a thousand miles to get it to Buffalo, New York or whatever, um, it, it, it doesn't do you any good because it becomes so much more expensive than, for example, burning, burning fossil fuels. So what, you're, what we expect to see, and you, know, you asked, do we do any mining? I said, no, we have these equity investments and that's really what this is uh, driven by, um, is Bitcoin mining in places that are, are physically inaccessible to human habitation, but not to Bitcoin mining. And whether that's hydro in big waterfalls in Canada or geothermal in the United States, it's going to take a long time to develop. Again, I think 10 years is a good, a good bogey, but all you need is a satellite connection to move, move the Bitcoin over the internet. Um, and that's, that's, I think, the thing that we're most excited about from an ESG perspective. And I think we'll look back in 10 years and actually view the Bitcoin industry as a pioneer in this transition to renewable energy in the world. Great. Thanks for that, uh, Robbie. And, and really, we're going to wrap this up. Um, just really appreciate your, your insight and your time. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a pleasure, a pleasure to be here, a pleasure to work with you. Thanks again, Rob. This concludes part two of the conversation between FSCIO, Mike Kelly, and NIDIG CEO, Robbie Goodman. Please subscribe to the Fireside Podcast, and thanks for joining us.